that's the story is like, what's going on? What, how do we make Kamala stronger? Because you can't mm-hmm. make 80 year old Biden any stronger, right? And people feel like they're not just voting for Biden, but they're voting for his successor because of his age. And that's why I think there's more of a spotlight on her and a critique. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, March 2nd. Today, Tara Palmieri joins me to talk about a question that's been nagging at the Biden White House since his inauguration. What to do about Kamala Harris? Since taking office and taking on some difficult policy issues, the VP has stumbled in interviews, cycled through staff, and been the subject of too many memes to count. But Tara and I ask if she's finally figuring out the job and what she can do to help Biden if he runs for re-election in 2024. And later, Teddy Schleifer joins Ben Landy to discuss the latest anvil to drop in the Sam Bankman-Fried case as another top FTX executive pleads guilty. Teddy will explain what it all means for the case against SBF. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri, who has a interesting piece up on Puck. It's an interview with Karen Finney, who's a veteran Democratic strategist. She worked for Edwards and Hillary, and she worked for the DNC. Um, And as Tara writes, she's part of Kamala Harris's kitchen cabinet. And Tara talked to Karen about what's up with Kamala. Is she an asset? Is she a liability? Why isn't she getting covered more? Is she getting covered fairly? Is she getting covered unfairly? Should she have a different issue portfolio? Does she need new staffers? All of the things everyone talks about, about Kamala Harris all the time. Tara, what did Karen Finney uh, say when you asked her like how to define Kamala Harris's brand? Like, what is what is her thing? I think she didn't want to say it as like directly, but I think her brand is that she has like a different life experience having worked in, you know, law enforcement as an AG and being a black woman, biracial, growing up in a single home uh, with a single mother, kind of bringing the perspective of a very important part of the Democratic electorate. So what she's saying basically is that Kamala is more of an identity you know, yeah. and that makes her an asset to President Biden. And look, I don't think that's a bad thing to say. I think a place where Kamala's defenders get tripped up is they start fighting about her issues and like, here's what she's working on. And or she was given a shitty portfolio when she came in to sort of fix uh, migration from <laughs> Central and South America across the border. And that, that's not really an issue for her. And Karen even got tripped up on this a little bit when you asked her, how is Vice President Harris redefining the role. And Karen says, well, some of it is issues, you know, like uh, lead pipes, electric school buses, clean water, et cetera. And then like four questions later, you asked her, Dick Cheney was a national security guy. Gore was the climate guy. Pence was Trump's conservative alter ego, like you said. What is Kamala? And then Karen says, well, it's less issue focused. It's actually about her upbringing and her identity and her race and her gender. And like, I think people should be okay saying that. Like, no one thinks that Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris to be his running mate because she had any outstanding policy vision, any 
core I- ideals, honestly, other than <laughs> being the sort of, you know, check the boxes Democrat down, down the way. She was picked because she brought youth, she was biracial, and she was a woman. And that helped Biden get elected. And that, it's okay to say that. <laughs> like, no one thinks that Kamala <laughs> Harris is like a policy sophisticate in the way that like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are, or the way like Susan Rice was on foreign policy. Um, she is on the law and legal issues, <laughs> but she does. She just never had a sort of policy identity, and that's okay to say. Yeah, and I guess it does sort of translate to policy anyway, because you know Karen made the point that she's able to elevate issues that that group um, of voters care about, who she represents. Mm-hmm. That's that, what they care about. The fact that she said, you know, we had a whole week on maternal health in the in the White House that never happens. You know, uh-huh. talking about disabled people. I mean, that's usually the stuff that's often not necessarily embraced by the white male vice president that we've had our entire country's history. So she's kind Mm -hmm. of, she's elevating issues that weren't always forefront because of her identity. So I think it's all what they wanted and what they needed. I just think there's, you know, because of Biden's age, because his lack of popularity, her low polling numbers as well, everyone's like, well, how do we fix the Kamala issue? Right. And that's, that's the story is like, what's going on? What, how do we make Kamala stronger? Because you can't mm-hmm. make 80 year old Biden any stronger, right? And people feel like they're not just voting for Biden, but they're voting for his successor because of his age. And that's why I think there's more of a, you know, a spotlight on her and a critique. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, like there's a spotlight on her because of her and, and it cuts both ways. Um, the successor thing is interesting, though, because like no one in Washington, no one in Democratic politics, no one who works for Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren or Gretchen Whitmer or anyone else who might run for president right on the Democratic side of the line is scared about Kamala Harris. They're not intimidated by her. They're not afraid to get in the race. She doesn't deserve to be the next president of the Democratic nominee unless she can go out and take it in a Democratic primary. And she did not prove that in the last Democratic primary when um, she failed to articulate any sort of message had one moment in a debate, which was designed by consultants to impress people in the media and in Washington, but was actually not reading anyone in the room. <laughs> and she tanked after that. So her you experience- You mean when she called f- Biden a racist, that one? Exactly, yeah. Okay. I mean, every, yeah. I mean, that just totally blew up in her face and backfired. And it was like classic, like DC, like brain poison, where it's like, go attack him, when it turns out that black voters actually really like Joe Biden. And that was stupid. Um, the successor question is more pointed when you do talk about Biden's age, because it's like, He could die. And she's the president. And so, like, that's where Democrats do have to worry. Like, will she be a successful president if something happens to Biden because of his health? You know, I think the only people worried really about Kamala's reputation and ability to succeed Joe Biden in a campaign are Kamala supporters and defenders. But I mean, I feel like institutionally, like the Democratic Party doesn't actually think that Kamala Harris is the heir apparent. We haven't had an heir apparent vice president since Al Gore. <laughs> like, it's like a dated notion. I know, but it's not even just that, Peter. Like, people are voting for an older president thinking he may not serve out his term. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, she, it's, it's the... more. She's more at the top of the ticket than ever before. So Karen said something that I do agree with, which is, and yeah, like, on issues like clean drinking water. Like, a, a running mate and a vice president, a lot of their role is to appeal to the base. And... Mike Pence is a good example of that. And by the way, Mike Pence is another example of somebody who no one knows what he actually stands for on a policy level. 
he was a brand and an identity that helped Trump get elected because of his appeal to movement evangelical conservatives. And that's all people right. know about him. All right. And like, that's okay to say that about Kamala. Like she helped him get elected. What she does as VP, like, I don't think a lot of people notice or care, except for what Karen said in your interview, which is I do think she gets good local press when she goes places. I mean, it's a big deal if Kamala Harris shows up in Raleigh or Chicago or Atlanta, you know, and like it gets coverage. And I think there, there's an asset there for any vice president. So that's true. And and people in Washington are very twisted up by like, what is her issue? What is her issue? Like, I don't think I just really don't think people other than hardcore, very online partisans actually know or care. They just know that she's the vice president and she's the first female vice president and she's the first black and Indian American vice president. And like, that's kind of where people are at. And right. Karen is right, too, that like her approval ratings, while slightly lower than Biden's, are really just tied to Joe Biden. The administration. Like, it's like yeah. the administration. Yeah. No, you're right. One thing I think was a mistake, and this might have been the West Wing or it might have been the VP's office, but I think it's the West Wing. If there is a shitty issue for you, immigration is a good example. It's like Biden's worst issue, like the border, yeah. rather. Put the vice president out there and let her take the bullets on that. Like she like gave a bunch of interviews early on and speeches that like she is clearly not comfortable despite being, yes, from a border state, which California is like she just wasn't comfortable talking about those things. And like this goes back to her days as a D.A. in like the Bay Area, like she's a lawyer, like she she likes to like know the briefs and know what to talk about. And like she's never really been an ideologue, you know, and coming up in a one party state like California you, again, you can like check all the boxes on the right things to say to win a primary, but like once you're put out there in the in the arena of a national campaign or like a national profile, like being vice president, she's cautious, and right. being cautious gets you in trouble. And we've seen this we've seen this with a ton of politicians, male and female, for a long time, where you're just not really good on your feet when you're asked about things you don't really know about. Yeah, because they care about the nuance. And I feel like when you start playing in the nuance, you're losing. And like even the people around her, they're always playing in the nuance. Like she's going after the root causes of migration, not the crossing of the border. Mm -hmm. No, it's yeah. migration. You got yeah, a shit yeah. sandwich. You know? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Like it's hard. And so like they, they can't put her in situations where they know she's going to have a hard time. That looks bad. Like and, and to Karen's point, it's like put her in situations where they know she'll be an asset. And that could be doing soft media. It could be doing like niche media that's targeted at the base. But like just sending her out to do an interview with Lester Holt about immigration. That's not great. The whole blame the staff stuff and Kamala's been blaming her staff for a long time when she messes up. That goes back to her California days too. But she does have to be prepared for certain environments to get whatever message they want out. And they have to be prepared to say, no, we shouldn't do that interview. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing that jumped into my mind, everyone, everyone please go read Tara's interview. It's up on the website. But I was thinking about like Dan Quayle being <laughs> vice <Just> president. <laughs> no, no, but like it reminds me of like the way she's covered is like Dan Quayle. It's like, he was picked as like a younger, more dynamic Republican for for H.W. Bush. And the VP only gets covered, really, when they like fuck up. Yes. Like, like that's it. It's like you could they cover the gaffes when Dan Quayle um, misspells ketchup or whatever uh, or gets in a fight with Murphy Brown or something. And like no one covers the rollout of like a lead pipe initiative in Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> like people in the local press cover it again, to Karen's point, that's good. But like. The national press doesn't really care about rollouts. They care about it when 
Kamala sounds like Selena Meyer and they can like do a mashup and like put it out on Twitter. <laughs> All right, Tara, thank you so much. Your next assignment is to uh, figure out if Elizabeth Warren was serious or not when she said it's up to Biden on who he should pick as his running mate. And she didn't commit to Kamala Harris as Biden's VP t- in 2024. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she walked that one back after they were like lots of angry phone calls. But yes, alas, sure maybe she has, maybe she just has her hand up, you know? I think so. I think uh, Warren would like that slot. All right, Tara, thanks so much. Thanks. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer talks to Ben about SBF. Welcome back and happy Thursday. I'm Ben Landy talking to Teddy Schleifer. Thanks for joining us, Teddy. Hey, Ben. Teddy, I want to talk about a pretty momentous update in the Sam Bankman-Fried legal thriller because on Tuesday, one of Sam's top deputies at FTX in Alameda, Nishad Singh, pleaded guilty to to a number of things, uh, wired fraud, commodities fraud, securities fraud, money laundering, and most interesting to us, campaign finance violations. This guy is 27 years old. He helped to do all the coding on the back end, building FTX. And he used to have a pretty mm-hmm. significant stake in the company. It was worth something like probably a billion dollars at one point. And now, of course, the only way that he's avoiding a very long prison sentence is whatever he has been telling prosecutors about Bankman-Fried to put him in jail. But I want to focus on the, the campaign finance violations because that's an area that you have been following super closely. You have been breaking more stories on this than anyone else. Just to begin, what do we know about Nishad Singh? Who is he? How did he get into this mess? Sure. So Nishad Singh is a FTX co-founder who originally came to Sam Bankman-Fried's orbit through Sam's brother, Gabe, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Nishad grew up in the Bay Area. He went to Berkeley and he spent a brief time at Facebook, but basically was at Alameda from the very beginning. And he ended up becoming a pretty significant political donor uh, in his own right. I think it was about 13 or $14 million dollars over the course of uh, the 2020 to 2022 era. And he became a target for investigators, just frankly, for just his work at FTX, um, allegations that you know he was very involved in the decision to um, permit customer deposits to be used to cover up for Alameda's own losses. Um, and a key part of this saga is that he was also um, a political donor who prosecutors allege, and now Nishad Singh cops to, uh, being a straw donor for Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, so the idea being that Nishad Singh made contributions, $13, $14 million, that were reimbursed by Sam Bankman-Fried um, through loans. You know, this is obviously disputed by, or will be disputed, or fought by the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried team. But Nishad Singh, along with some other executives, got lots of big loans to uh, finance their lifestyle, but more importantly, to finance uh, these donations. Um, and Nishad made a lot of checks to political committees that were ultimately paid for, at least allegedly, SBF himself. And that is 100% illegal. So Nishad now cops to it, and it's going to deepen uh, the scrutiny that befalls not only Sam, but also Sam's brother, Gabe. This is like scene two or scene three, and I think uh, a five scene play here. Very short play. Teddy, I'm curious what kind of political groups Singh was giving to, but I'm also curious, like, what did SBF get out of all this? Basically 
paying his deputies at FTX to make donations in their own names where the money was really kind of flowing through him or flowing through his companies? Like, what was he trying to accomplish in hiding the source of that money? It's a good question because it is not illegal as a donor to give unlimited contributions to super PACs. Uh, Sam Ekman Freud, if you want to give $4 million, for instance, to um, the Michigan abortion rights ballot initiative that was Nishad gave $4 million to last cycle, Sam could have done it himself. Um, there are only contribution limits on, on hard dollars, right, on contributions to political committees. You know, there, I don't even know if the juice is worth the squeeze in the fraud because, you know, the, you can contribute another 2900 bucks to uh, a political candidate if you do a straw donation scheme. But, but really here, we're talking about soft dollar contributions about outside groups. And really what this boils down to, at least if you believe SDNY, is a question over optics um, and a question over how certain donations were perceived. That is something that theoretically doesn't really matter, right? Like if you're a committee and you get a $5 million from Nishad Singh or $5 million from Sam Megman Freed, it doesn't really matter. But in practice, you know, in, in our kind of current political climate, you know, donations to super PACs are attacked all the time. Sam was very conscious of the fact, allegedly, that his donations would be disclosed and he wanted to have some distance between himself and some of what are now known uh, in a line from the indictment that will be immortalized forever as, as the woke shit contributions. Um, so Nishad became the the lefty donor, um, which I do think matched his politics to some broadly, I will say. But Nishad ended up contributing a lot to the woke shit stuff. So an abortion ballot measure in Michigan. He also gave a bunch to a political group in Vermont that we can talk about in a little bit. There were a lot of donations that Nishad made that were purely for optics reasons, allegedly, because again, Sam could have donated himself, but essentially the the scheme here was let's be almost too cute by half in making sure these donations look right. Well, you mentioned Singh's involvement in uh, Vermont, and you covered this a little bit in your reporting from Tuesday, but why don't you connect the dots here for us as well? So last summer, in summer 2022, there was a congressional race to represent the state of Vermont. It's the only congressional seat in the, in the state. But essentially what happened was there was a super PAC that spent a million dollars, which by Vermont standards is, you know, uh, a small fortune, to back a congressional candidate named Becca Ballant, who was running against the state's lieutenant governor, Molly Gray, for the Democratic nomination for Congress, which of course in Vermont means effectively, effectively the seat itself. That money uh, was routed by FTX's kind of uh, affiliated pandemic lobbying group called Guarding Against Pandemics. But the donation didn't look like that. The donation looked like it was from this super PAC, the LGBT Victory Fund, which was supporting Ballant, who is openly lesbian. And and the super PAC was effectively shopped for by the pandemic preparedness group. So to really dumb this down, they wanted to support Becca Ballant. They wanted to make sure it looked good. The optics of the donation looked good. So rather than spending money on her behalf through the Sam Bankman-Fried Super PAC, they tried to find a, a group that had the right feel and would it be, when it was public, who was advertising on behalf of her, that it would look right. Um, so they actually conducted a poll, I report in the story, to, you know, there were a bunch of different Super PACs that could donate to, but uh, Sam and Gabe Bankman-Fried, you know, surveyed um, which of these groups would be the least objectionable in Vermont, obviously, in a Vermont Democratic primary. And the prediction made by the SBF team was that if they supported a super PAC that you know was affiliated with a, a gay rights advocacy group, if that group was attacked by Molly Gray, um, they could say, 
hey, why are you guys being homophobic? Don't don't you know super PACs have the ability to support candidates of of their identity group? And predictably, of course, Ben, that is exactly what happened. They spent a million dollars. Molly Gray's campaign was apoplectic um, about it, and they remain apoplectic to this day. But the the new turn of the screw here is that we now know this donation was from Nishad Singh, who it sort of sounds like didn't really want to make the donation in the first place. And, you know, SDNY alleges that he was, quote unquote, selected to do it, which is not illegal on its own. Right. I mean, tons of corporate lobbying campaigns will select a person to put their name to a donation. Government relations staff all the time will select which executives or which board members are making contributions to corporate PACs. Like, it's not as if every political donation is this organic late night discovery of, of a candidate who, who speaks to them on, on a website. I mean, but the reimbursement scheme certainly is illegal. Right. It's the allegation that um, the money that Singh was giving w- was drawn directly from Alameda as a loan that he never had to pay back. Absolutely. Yeah, the the whole thing really is so cynical. I mean, the the line about him being the face of the, quote, woke transactional shit is is so funny in some Mm. ways. But it's also, it seems like it's so out of character of the person that you describe in this piece. I mean, you, you talk to some people who have known Singh. They describe him as this sweet, lovable, nerdy guy. I'm hesitant to overhumanize this guy who, you know, was complicit in essentially stealing billions of dollars. I mean, one of the greatest financial frauds uh, of the century, p- perhaps ever. But I'm curious how mm. people who knew him square their picture of him with the fact that he aided and abetted this this incredible scam. That's a great question. Look, people are complicated. You know, as I was as I was writing the story this week, I was listening to a lot of like podcasts um, that Nishad had taped or, or interviews. Uh, I do think that there was almost a obsequiousness around Sam from his aides, like this guy could do no harm. I do think some of that extended to Sam's brother, where where people felt very devoted to doing anything they could to to help them. You know, uh, Nishad like wasn't family, right? But he was, you know, he did like grow up sort of around around this family. Um, and I'm certainly, you know, psychoanalyzing here, but I, I wonder if that was a part of it. You know, you know, he was also Nishad was also certainly a true believer in ineffective altruism. He did believe that, you know, he was trying to do good in the world and prevent future pandemics. And if political donations were a way to do it, maybe the ends justify the means. I know that's a very reductive read of kind of the utilitarian part of effective altruism, but there is a there is an element, at least narrowly, of of EA that can uh, excuse misconduct, uh, at least if, if viewed in sort of a warped way. And, you know, certainly that's a question around around Sam as well. You can think about the, the exact question you posed, Ben, which I think is, is a great one, I think definitely applies to Sam uh, as well. I suspect on some level, too, that neither of these guys thought they would get caught. I mean, really, the, the, the background yeah. of a lot of these characters in this saga are children of privilege, um, who, who have gone to great private schools, great public and, and private universities, who made an incredible amount of money at such an early age and really thought they could do no wrong. Teddy, I'm, I'm curious before I let you go, what other shoes you think might drop here? I mean, you mentioned Gabe, Sam's brother is sort of involved in all of this. There's also Ryan Salem, who is the other, uh, we believe, unnamed co-conspirator in the revised Sam Bankman-Fried indictment, who's sort of the, the face of the Republican giving he has not been charged with anything that, that we know of. We're not sure exactly what's happening with him. Do you think he could be in trouble as well? 
I think Ryan and Gabe are, are the next two questions on this stuff. So so Ryan was the other person mentioned in the superseding indictment released last week. It, it was notable to me that, that Ryan, um, some of the crimes that Ryan is alleged to have committed weren't really detailed in that indictment. While there were a lot of examples about Nishad, that struck me as well as some other lawyers who I know were tracking the case. The idea that Nishad was going to plea was not surprising. Like there have been a couple of leaks over the last couple of weeks that uh, he had talked to SDNY. Meanwhile, there's been like nothing about Ryan. And I know that's either he's keeping a good lid on any talks or, you know, it's maybe suspicious. I don't know. But but that, that's one question. Uh, Gabe, uh, you know, certainly is under um, uh, under scrutiny from, from prosecutors, fairly or not. I mean, I think prosecutors see the family as a way to squeeze Sam um, further, maybe get him to cop to a deal. Or, or kind of just plead guilty and, and save everybody some time. But Gabe himself, you know, certainly could be under the microscope. You know, the Nishad plea, Nishad certainly has information about, about guarding against pandemics, certainly has information about Gabe. In addition to being a high school friend, you know, Gabe was sort of an advisor to Nishad early on. Nishad relied upon Gabe and a few other aides to make his political contributions. It's kind of all one operation, um, at least on the Democratic side. So certainly, I, I will predict as of March 2 or, or whatever today is that there will be probably more campaign finance charges to come eventually. I have a hard time believing this is the end of it. Yeah, well, we'll have to wait and watch and see what happens. Teddy, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.